Well, we're in week two of this series about love and relationships and marriage. And I recognize that some of you maybe didn't have a chance to be here last week. So I just wanted to recap what the big idea behind this series is. Throughout that video, you see in both the positive and the negative, a number of things that people believe about their relationship that oftentimes has only a little bit of segment of truth to it. That the reality is, is that many of us believe things about our spouse, about the person we're dating, or about our marriage that actually are lies. And lies are so dangerous to believe because they affect our behavior and our attitude. And so what we're doing in this series over four weeks is we're exposing four statements for things people believe to be that which they are, lies. And we're exposing them with God's truth and giving you a framework to overcome those lies with the hope of having a stronger and more fulfilling marriage or relationship. And so last week, we uh, sort of addressed uh, the first lie, which you can find here on the screen. Um, That lie is this, that my spouse can fully and completely meet all my needs. And one of the things you need to recognize in all of these lies that we're going to be looking at, including today's, is that most of them you're not going to sort of resonate with hook, line, and sinker. Like, maybe none of you think this to the word, but yet in all of them, I guarantee you that there are little segments of truth, little nuances to these lies that you absolutely do believe and fall into thinking. So last week what we did is we went back to the creation of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and we recognized that God created marriage to be a tremendous blessing. That God created a husband and a wife to meet certain needs that a husband and wife might have. But, and I used an illustration for this with a 30-pound dumbbell, that when we put the full force of the needs that we have, when we put that weight on our spouse, he or she is going to feel crushed. Because our spouse, or if you're not married, our friend, was not designed to carry the full weight of our needs. No person is. And so we kind of expose the truth to this lie with this verse that says a whole lot. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. In Christ Jesus. And and if you remember, we, we talked about the cross and we talked about what Jesus did there and how that not only changes your eternity, but it also changes the way you think about yourself in so many different ways. And that Jesus ultimately is the one that can carry the weight of the emotional needs that we have. And our spouse is a conduit to help reflect a little bit of that in our lives. So this week, what we're going to do, our sermon theme is this, happily ever after. Now, what do you think of when you hear that phrase? Maybe you think of princesses and fairy tales and Disney 
and castles. Did you know that almost every single fairy tale tends to have almost the exact same plot? Let me let you in. So what usually, if you look at all the Disney movies about princesses, and I know about all of them because I have kids, um, there's a princess, there's a girl, and there's some obstacle or problem that is in her way and that she needs to overcome. And then there's always a dude, and he's either a knight or he's a prince or he's just a really good guy. And as the movie gets going, they're apart. And you begin to see, huh, they might be better together. But it's the obstacle in the way that makes it so hard for them to get together. But if they could get together, if the obstacle wasn't there, then they would live happily ever after. And so let, let's let's sort of try out this theory that this is every movie. So Cinderella, so she has the obstacle of family members who want to lock her in her house and not let her out. Makes it hard to have a relationship. Um, You think of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. There's this spell that the witch sort of plays on Snow White that makes it difficult for her to have a relationship because she's sleeping and she needs to have a prince kiss her, right? In Beauty and the Beast, what's the obstacle? Well, like many men, the beast is a beast, right? And so Belle needs to look through the beastliness of the beast and find true love, right? And then, or how about the little mermaid? What did, what did Ariel need? She needed to get legs. Would someone get a girl some legs, right? So that she could be where the people are, right? And once in all of these, it, try it out. Every movie is the same. Get rid of the obstacle. The people finally come together. And then what happens? The movie doesn't start. The movie ends. And they lived happily ever after, right? Now, I hope that you see that this fairy tale paradigm of if only we could get together, if only I found someone, then all of a sudden everything would be great and we'll live happily ever after. I hope you see it for what it is a fictitious fairy tale and a lie. Because here's what I found from personal experience is that. Most of the time, in almost every relationship, the fun part is the getting together. The easiest part is the dating part, right? It's the time when every time you touch her hand, you have goosebumps on your arm and butterflies in your stomach. It's the time that whenever he sees you, you are looking fine, right? You have, you have the right clothes on and you, the right makeup and, and all of that stuff. It's the dating relationship that ultimately is a whole lot easier than the actual relationship. The getting together is easier than the staying together. But it's interesting. While anyone who's married recognizes that as being true? The reality is, is that when a marriage relationship hits a difficult time, 
we don't question the paradigm of happily ever after. You know what we question? We question the relationship that we might have married the wrong person. We know intuitively the fairy tale idea is not true, but when a relationship, when a marriage hits tough times, we so often question not the paradigm, we question the relationship that maybe this isn't the right person, that maybe the grass is greener. And in big ways or small ways, we start to question the relationship, which leads us to the lie for today, that if I'm not happy, then I must not have married the right person. If I'm not happy in this relationship, then it must be something about that person. But let me just tell you, if the right person you are looking for makes you happy all the time, and has no baggage or no issues and never disappoints you and never makes you sad, if that's who you're looking for, I'm just going to tell you, you're never going to get married. Because the truth of the matter is, the right person you're looking for does not exist. There are no right persons in that degree or with that definition. You know, the funny thing is, over my years of of counseling marriages and things, you hear a lot of different things. And there's also this very interesting dynamic about the right person. I've had people come to my office and think that they're not married to the right person and it's not the right relationship, that they just need to break this relationship, this marriage, because the right person is out there. But what I have never, ever, ever had is someone come and say, I feel bad for my spouse because they got a raw deal. Because I think when they married me, they married the wrong person. (laughs) We we always think the other person is the wrong person and we we are the right person. That's how we think. Here's the truth. And this is getting at the heart of this lie and then we're going to talk about what to do about it. Here's the truth. We live in an imperfect world made up of imperfect people, which will result 100% of the time in imperfect marriages. And by this, I am not saying that you should settle for a marriage that is dysfunctional and not happy. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if your view of a good marriage is that there won't be really, really difficult times, then you and I don't truly understand what sin does to the world, what it does to us, and what it does to relationships. So, with that in mind, here's what I'd like to do. Because we spend so much time naturally thinking about what the other person needs to do in order for our relationship to be better. What I'd like to do today is this. I want us to recognize not what it takes to find the right person, but what it looks like to be the right person. I'd like us to, to, to change the focus a little bit and not what it takes to find the right person and is the person I'm sitting next to right now that person or instead, what does it look like to be the right person? 
And this goes for those of you who are married or not. The truth that we're going to see is something that God gives to all of us, whether we're young or old, married or single. And these verses come from probably one of the most famous sections in the Bible about marriage. It's also probably the one that is the most controversial for people as well. And in fact, sometimes people will actually ask to not have this section read at their marriage or at their wedding because they feel uncomfortable with the words and the verbiage. And we'll get to that a little bit later, okay? But before we get to maybe some more of those very controversial sections, or at least some think so, I want to start with a verse that's at the very beginning of this section about marriage. And in fact, I will say this. It sets the tone for everything else that comes after it. You can't understand the other verses if you don't understand this first verse. It's written by Paul to some Christians in the city of Ephesus. He encourages this. Submit to one another. See that yellow word? That's the word no one likes. And oftentimes, when guys like it, they like it for the wrong reasons because they think that it gives them the upper hand. But the reason why I think no one likes it is they don't quite understand what it means. You see, most often when we see the word submit, we think of a UFC fighter who's got his opponents in a headlock or a leg lock, and they just keep applying pressure to that person until they tap out and submit. And if that is in any way the way that you think of when it comes to the word submit in this case, you'd be wrong because in the Greek, there's a few different words for submit, and this one is hypotasso. And what hypotasso has at the center of it is not a forced submission by any means. In fact, it doesn't have anything to do with the person who is being submitted to. It has everything to the person who is submitting. That it is a gift that a person willingly gives to another person. This is why this whole idea of submission in chapter 5 is not demeaning or whatever at all. Because the only way hypotasso happens is when a person decides, I want to give this to someone. It cannot be taken. It cannot be forced. It has to be given as a gift. And at the very beginning of this section, Paul writes that this is what happens both to a husband and to a wife, that there is a submitting to one another, which, if I could define it, is freely and willingly putting someone else's wants and desires before your own. It can't be taken. It can't be forced. It has to be given, guys and gals, as a gift to the person whom we're married to. So what does hupotasso look like? Um, Hippotasso looks like Jesus the night before he died. That night, you know what one of the things he did? He took sort of the 
the activity of a servant, and he got down on his knees, and he did that which only the lowliest of servants and slaves would do. He washed the disciples' feet. Hippotasso. Um, it's the husband who gladly and willingly watches the Hallmark movie even though the game is on. Hippotasso. It's the, the wife who decides that she will go out for pizza and beer even though she would rather go to the supper club or whatever. This is not a forced thing. Let me say that again. It is something that's willingly given. This type of me-you-first type of submission is a mutual submission. And I will say this. It works better when both are giving it, when both are doing it, when both are serving each other. It works better. But it does not depend on the other person doing it. Does that make sense? It works better. It thrives when both are doing it. But it doesn't depend on the other person doing it first. So, our first point for the message today is this. That when we are doing things right in our marriage, Paul directs us that we are to ask, what can I give? Not what can I get. What can I do? Not what have you done for me? Now, this is where the sermon ends. Just go home and do that. Every day, all the time. And you're going to have great marriages, guys. I guarantee it. And so does Paul. But let's be real. This is easy to talk about and nod our heads about. It's really, really hard to do. This is easy to think about. You know, when I teach my pre-marriage workshop, um, we talk about this, and we talk about this mutual submission. And when I, I say something like, this is about what I can give, not what I can get, that's the moment that the, 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 the guy kind of pulls his fiance a little bit closer and is like, yeah, babe, that's what I'm going to do for you. All of our marriage, right? <laughs> and, and then they get married. And uh, she got no sleep because the baby was colicky all night. And uh, he wasn't home to help with the kids because he had a big project going on um, at work, and so he was gone all weekend. Or they forgot to take the garbage out again, right? And real life happens, and this becomes a really, really difficult thing to actually accomplish in our marriages. And so I just, I just want you to recognize what's going on. You struggle every day with a sinful nature. And you disappoint your spouse a lot. And I do the same. And I know what I should do. Submit, willingly and freely give but I'm too much about myself sometimes. And here's the other thing I want you to recognize. That you're married to someone who struggles with the same thing. It's not different than what you struggle with. She or he disappoints you sometimes, 
because she has the same struggle with her sinful nature, or he does, that you do. And you see, guys, it can be so easy for us to think about how um, the person I'm married to, they just don't deserve for me to do this for them, because look at what they do or what they don't do. The reality is that Paul clues us in to the reason why or the motivation we can have for this really difficult direction if we go back to that first verse, verse 21. You see, after submit to one another, Paul clues us into the why. And it's not submit to one another because she's so cute. Guys, this is why dating goes so easily at the beginning. Because that's all we see, because guys are visual, right? And we would do anything because she's so cute, right? Um, It's not submit to one another because I'm so in love all the time. And I have this feeling of love all the time. I mean, you get married long enough and like that starts to make you gag, right? You know, sadly, (laughs) it's not that. Submit to one another because they deserve it. Again, 100% of women and 100% of men do not deserve this. It doesn't matter because Paul gives us different direction. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. My kids have heard me and you have heard me say that the most important thing to look for in a spouse is a strong Christian. Do you realize that if you don't marry a Christian, this is not possible? So what's their motivation? The truth is, I don't know. It's probably to make him or her treat me better or because they've done good things for me in the past or we'll do it for the kids. We'll stick together. But the best way, the way that God directs, the way that it works, the best and the healthiest is when two people understand what Christ has done and they are willing to not perfectly because they're sinners, but diligently and purposefully put the other person first out of reverence for what Jesus has done for them. And I was thinking through this this week, and I was thinking about what Christ has done. And do you know the one word that probably best describes what he did for you? It starts with an S. The Son of God and Savior of the world submitted to us. Now that gives me goosebumps. If you look through his life and all that he did, time and time again, he said, you first, it's not about me. Some of us may like to move because we like to you know, maybe upgrade to a better neighborhood. Let me just say this. When Jesus moved from heaven to earth, it was the opposite. And yet, 
he was willing. He submitted to you. And when God was given a body, I don't know how he looked, probably not like the drawing show, but it had to be a little claustrophobic in there for him because he's the creator of the universe now confined to a body, but he submitted to you. When he went to the desert and didn't eat for 40 days to fulfill all righteousness and felt the pains of hunger that none of us in this room have felt, you know why he did it? Because he loved you and he submitted to you. When his back was thrashed with the floggings of a whip and his body was stretched out on a cross and nails through his hands and feet, why did he do it? The answer is he willingly and selflessly was willing to submit to you, to put your needs ahead of his own. Guys, our entire hope for heaven and eternity is all about and centered around a God who submitted to his sinful people because his love was that great. And what Paul is saying is, those of us who have been changed by a God who is willing to submit out of reverence for what he has done, we can do the same for those we're married to. You know, it, it's, it's almost as if it was like this, that we recognize just how amazing God's love is for us and how awesome his grace is for us that our, our, our eternity and our present have been changed because of the hope of heaven and forgiveness. And it's as if these verses are like us asking, God, what could I do to show you my thankfulness for all that you've done for me? And it's as if Paul's writing and he says, God says, here's what you can do. You can take all that thankfulness and all that appreciation that I, as God, deserve. And I, I want you to take all of that. I want you to display it. I want you to pour it out on the person you're living with that doesn't deserve it. And our response might be, can I just volunteer for guest services? That'd be easier. Or how about give 11%? I don't, I mean, that's just, as if God say no. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be unashamedly forgiving and loving for the person you're married to, to be selfless to that person. And so, here's the reality, our next fill-in. Christ-centeredness is the key to overcoming self-centeredness. This is true in marriage, but it's true in every area of life. You try to be selfish and self-centered when your heart and mind is continually thinking and focusing on all Christ has done for you for eternity. It becomes very, very difficult to be selfish or self-centered when we're Christ-centered. And so here's a question, guys. 
what do we need to do in order to individually or collectively be as Christ-centered as possible in our marriages, in our lives, and in our relationships? Because I guarantee you that carrying out God's will for our marriages are going to be easier and more fulfilling when we're focused on Christ. In my study for this week, I ran across this quote from a pastor. He said, Getting a divorce because you don't feel in love is like selling a car because you ran out of gas. (laughs) Isn't that so true? So why don't you just fill it up? And that's what God says in our marriages. Have you filled up lately? Are you regularly filling up? through worship, through Bible study, through prayer. It's not your spouse. Yeah, she's a sinner. So am I. It's that we're not filling up, maybe, or remembering at least what Christ has done for us. And so Jesus and the cross is like this tent. It's like this canopy um, under which a healthy marriage works and lives. Not a perfect marriage, but a healthy one. And then Paul goes on with all the other verses that cause so many challenges and so many problems with some. Verse 22 especially is one that people don't like. Why specifically? How can you carry out this role of submission? Well, this makes sense. You can carry out the role of submitting to one another by submitting to one another. Not a headlock, not a leg lock. This is something women, that you willingly and graciously give. Just like you would the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church, that would be us, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, another difficult verse for some. This doesn't mean the boss. It doesn't mean the dictator. I think probably the best way to consider what the flavor is behind this word head is to think about fellas' responsibility. When you marry someone, fellas, you are taking on the responsibility of not being passive in your relationship, especially with the spiritual things, but in everything. You are committing to being the leader when it comes to being the first to ask for forgiveness, the first to forgive You're the one getting the rest of the family up for church on Sunday morning, and your wife doesn't need to coax you to do it. And there's so many other applications of this, but the reality is it means a great responsibility that no man in this room, including this one, has done perfectly, but it is what we aspire to be, guys. That we love the person that we're married to so much that we're going to selflessly take on the responsibility of leading her. Leading her to the Lord. It goes on, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. 
How did he love us? Gave himself up for us on the cross to make us holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, baptism, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. You think of a bride there, don't you? That's the exact analogy that Paul wants us to see, that the church is like a bride and Christ is like the husband without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28. In the same way, just like what Christ did, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. God's plan is pretty awesome. And I don't know about you, but when I understand verse 21, I don't get any of the cultural, any of the cultural baggage that so many people tend to get in these verses. It is a mutual submission. Husband putting his wife first. Wife putting her husband first. And so as we kind of conclude today, um, I wanted to get very practical for you. And so here is your homework if you dare accept it. I would like you, husbands and wives, to selflessly serve your spouse in two specific ways this week. That could be surprising her with caribou. That could be ironing his shirts when he didn't ask. Um, that could be a back rub. That, I, I don't know what it is for you, but if you remind them that you're doing what Ben said, it doesn't count because there's no reward in selfless. The hope is your spouse doesn't even think about the why, but instead that the why is something that is not self-serving at all, that it's just love. And wives, if you notice that your husband did something like that this week, I plead with you not to say, you just did that because Ben said for you to do that. Here's what I instead, when you want those words to come out, I want you to stop talking and to say this. Be, or not say it, but think it. Just be thankful that your husband listened at the sermon and loved you enough to try what that crazy pastor asked him to do. This week was a good week for me as I was prepping for this message and this whole series, really, just to think about my marriage relationship uh, to Carrie. And that whole fairy tale thing got me thinking about maybe how at least I, maybe her too, felt at the very beginning of our relationship when we were dating in college and how every touch from her hand caused goosebumps on my body, you know, and just so in love. And, and, and she might remember this, but there was a time before we were actually married in our engaged uh, season where we kind of talked with each other about something we recognized that we had never gotten into a real argument before. And at least me was thinking, because I, I don't think she was so naive, but at least I was thinking maybe we could be the first marriage that doesn't get into a big argument like ever, right? How stupid, because now we're married 19 years, and I, yeah, we've had arguments, some big ones. 
I found out that she's not the right person. (laughs) Perfect, that is. And she's found out that I'm not either. She's seen me at my best, and she's seen me at my worst. I've seen her at her best. I've seen her, she doesn't have a worst, but a worse. And through it all, here's what I've recognized. That while marriage isn't easy, when two people mutually submit to each other, there is a deep love and a deep appreciation that is so much richer than merely happily ever after. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for people in our lives that bring community and support and love to us. And for those of us who are married in this room, we thank you for that that one person who we're married to. And Lord, forgive us all for at times being harder on our spouse than we are on ourselves, being more gracious to our faults than we are to theirs. And Lord, just help us, motivated by what you've done for us, submit to selflessly put our spouse and their desires and their needs and their wishes ahead of our own. We ask for that blessing upon every marriage represented in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.